Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. We'll talk to Richard Bury now, CEO of the New York City nonprofit known these days as Robin Hood. Bury was previously the deputy mayor for strategic policy initiatives under Mayor Bill de Blasio, and he was a key architect of the city's universal pre-K program, universally hailed as the de Blasio administration's best thing. You may have seen Richard Bury's or Robin Hood's name in the news this week for the report they just released, along with the Poverty Tracker Research Group at Columbia University, that found a shocking recent increase in poverty in the city, 500,000 more New Yorkers in poverty in 2022 than the year before, they say. And it's a paradox, right? Because the city has recovered to the same number of jobs from before the pandemic. One key finding, they're not the same kind of jobs. And to Bury's main policy interests, children, they are bearing the brunt of the poverty surge. Let's find out more now about the findings and what he thinks can be done from Robin Hood CEO, Richard Bury. Richard, always good to have you on the show. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. Always good to be with you. Can I ask as a starting point, how do you define poverty for the sake of your report? Uh, absolutely. That's a great place to start. So we define poverty using the supplemental poverty measure, uh, which is a more robust measure of poverty than uh, sort of the traditional poverty me- measure, which was adopted by the federal government, the Social Security Administration in the 1960s, which, you know, looked at the cost of uh, uh, the, sort of the breadbasket approach. You looked at the cost of food. Uh, and you multiplied that by three and you got the poverty rate. The supplemental poverty measure is much more dynamic. It includes all expenses, not only food, uh, which of course is a relatively smaller portion of people's expenses, but housing, uh, healthcare, all the things that actually you need to thrive. It's also tied to uh, the local cost of living. So um, it acknowledges that living in New York City is more expensive than living in other places. So we use a supplemental poverty measure. Uh, and what that is, is for a family of four, it's almost $44,000. And as you say, what we find is that using that poverty measure, um, really disturbing results that from 2021 to 2022, which is what this survey is reporting on, as you said, an additional 500,000 New Yorkers living in poverty compared to the year before. So up from 1.5 million New Yorkers to 2 million New Yorkers, uh, and over 400,000 of those New Yorkers are children living in poverty in New York City. And these numbers are from 2022. It's now 2024. Why is this about the state of the poverty two years ago, uh, of poverty two years ago and not more recently? Yeah. Wh- one of the things that we do is, so this is from our report called our Poverty Tracker Report. Um, For the last 12 years now, every year, we interview thousands of New Yorkers living in poverty, and we interview them on uh, every few months. So it allows us to get a rich picture of how their lives are experienced over the course of of, a year and how it changes and how their experience in poverty changes. Um, uh, And it's a representative sample of New Yorkers. So we're not looking at real-time data. We're talking to people and asking well, what did you earn this year? What have your experiences been like? What have you struggled with? And so um, 
it's a little bit behind current data, but it allows us to have a richer understanding of what New Yorkers are actually experiencing. So 500,000 more New Yorkers in poverty in 2022 than the year before. Um, you mentioned children. Can you put more human faces on that cold hard stat? Besides how old are they? Who else are they demographically? Where do they live in the city? Anything else? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I'll say a few things. One is you can imagine um, that the experience of poverty is not experienced equally of everyone. Uh, so we know that those poor New Yorkers are more likely to be people of color. Um, Latino New Yorkers have almost have more than double the poverty rate uh, of white New Yorkers. Um, Asian and black New Yorkers have uh, also much higher poverty rates. Um, 24% for Asian New Yorkers and 23% of black New Yorkers. Um, we know that female New Yorkers experience higher rates of poverty and hardship than male New Yorkers. We know that it's not experienced in every borough the same, the Bronx, um, have a higher concentration of poverty. Uh, so we understand that this disadvantage um, is not equally experienced. The, uh, the other thing I would say is that when we talk about poverty, it's in some ways looking at this poverty number doesn't tell a full enough picture because it's not as though only those 2 million New Yorkers are struggling. If you look at people who have double the poverty rate, so again, that's $88,000 for a family of four in a year. What you find is that their experience is in many ways very similar to the experience of New Yorkers who are further down the income line. They are twice as likely to struggle with paying their bills. Um, they're making choices every month between, am I gonna pay the rent? Or am I gonna put food on the table? Or am I gonna go to a doctor if I get sick? Uh, and that's more than half of New Yorkers, 56% of New Yorkers who earn $88,000 or less. Uh, the story it tells us is that it's not just a few of us that are struggling. It's most of us that are struggling. That the affordability crisis, the um, uh, the challenges of our economy are burdening too many of us. And it means that we are not living in the city that we want to live in. Children are not experiencing the lives they deserve to experience. Uh, it, is a, it is a crisis. And listeners, we invite your phone calls. For Richard Bury, CEO of the group Robin Hood, are you or is anyone you know in a family with children struggling financially in or close to what we might call poverty? 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. What would help you or someone you know at a policy level? Or how can Richard Bury give you some tips, perhaps, on qualifying for all the benefits you're eligible for, or maybe even finding the best work, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, with a story to tell or a question or a comment with this new report out showing 500,000 additional New Yorkers went into poverty in 2022 compared to the year before disproportionately children, 212-433-9692, call or text. Were, was much of the jump in poverty in 2022 from the expiration of certain pandemic-related benefits that were in place in 2021? Absolutely, Brian. I mean, there's a, a confluence of factors, but the, the driving factor is certainly the end of pandemic-era benefits. You know, the 
what's so interesting, uh, if that's the right word, uh, is that during the pandemic, when uh, so many of us were suffering, New York City, like much of the world, much of the country, saw historic declines in poverty. Um, indeed, the poverty rate fell by 68% as driven by um, federal, state, and local policy that were designed to help people stabilize their lives during this incredible public health and economic crisis. Yeah, and that's a paradox like the, we've talked about many times yeah. before on the show, but it's still incredible that it, it, those government yeah. benefits could have more than made up for all the lost jobs that people were experiencing during the lockdown. Absolutely. Um, things like, if you know, everything from uh, stimulus payments to expansion of unemployment insurance to most critically, the uh, expansion of the child tax credit, which was expanded and made fully refundable and was paid uh, every month as opposed to once at the end of the year, really helped stabilize people's lives. And it's so important to remember that, you know, we, we look at the world, I mean, all of us, you know, we go out in the world and it can be so overwhelming. Um, and it's so easy to sort of see people struggling, see people who are homeless, see people who are challenged and to think, well, it's just natural. It's just the nature of the world. It's just the way the world is. Or you say, well, it's somebody's moral failing or it's someone's bad luck. The truth is, these are choices that we make as a society. These are policy choices. Because we know when we saw that when we as a country decided that we were going to do something, um, we did it. We, um, we helped improve and stabilize people's lives during one of the most difficult periods uh, that this city and this country have ever experienced. And that's part of what's so heartbreaking is that now we are making different choices and people are struggling. Uh, you know, one of the, you know, the, and it's hard to overestimate how important uh, it is, especially for children, because as you know, so much of the way that children's brains develop, so much of what happens and what set them on the course of their lives happens at the early ages. You know, what happened in the baby's mind, the one-year-old's mind, has so much impact on their entire life trajectory. Uh, there is a study that NYU is leading right now that we're one of the funders of called Baby's First Years, which is investigating what happens when you give parents to very young children money. Um, and some of the early findings of that study are extraordinary because they're seeing uh, substantial changes in brain activity uh, for children whose parents receive a large cash infusion of young children versus those who don't. Um, you can only imagine what impact these supports had on the children during the pandemic. And again, we're learning so much about how what happened in the earliest years is so important, um, but we're just not acting on what we know. Let me ask you kind of an ultimate question, and you could probably give a two-hour speech on this, so you'll have to figure out how to give a radio interview <laughs> level answer. But now that you've been studying poverty full-time at Robin Hood, and with your experience as deputy mayor before that and the de Blasio administration, which came in with equality as its main focus, inequality, what are the biggest underlying causes of structural poverty in the city today? Because if we look back, um, I think, you know, this station is about to celebrate its 100th anniversary, and I'll bet we could go back in the archives and have clips that we could find of many, many conversations like this with many, many hosts and many, many guests, and we still have high poverty rates in the city. Yeah. 
So what are the biggest underlying causes of structural poverty in the city today? I realize it's a big question. It is a big question. Um, but in some ways, there are some straightforward answers. Right. And so one thing I would say that in America, it is impossible to disentangle the experience of poverty from the experience of racism. Uh, it's not a coincidence why many of the indicators of poverty are more pronounced in communities of color. But even beyond that, I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons why we as a country, we as a society, don't make the investments that we're supposed to make is because we have racialized poverty, even though it's always been the case there have been more poor white people than more poor, than, than black people. Um, however, I think in a country which has racism driving so much of its core, um, I think that fact and the idea that we have we have a narrative of poverty that describes the poor as the other, the unworthy, that it stops us from making common sense investments, common sense decisions that we know would make life more equitable and more uh, and expand opportunity for more Americans. But we don't do them uh, almost because we, we, we don't want to help those who we see as the other. So I, I think it's impossible to disentangle that. Um, and then I would just sort of say again, as a country, we continue uh, to ignore what we knows what we know matters. We understand how important early childhood experience and education are, but we fail to make the investments that we know would drive opportunity there. We know that people need affordable and safe places to live, but we refuse to make the investments in expanding access to affordable housing. Um, so while it's not just one policy issue, right, you know, we need education, we need housing, we need food access, we need health care. I think we constantly find ourselves failing to make these investments um, because we, we're unwilling. Um, we, we don't always mean it when we say, you know, we, we talk a language that says we care about and we believe in equal opportunity. But I just honestly think too many of us don't believe it. Um, but, you know, I, I remain hopeful. Because although uh, it is certainly true that we've been talking about these issues for a long time, it's also true that we've made tremendous progress over those years. We've made tremendous progress when it comes to racial uh, equality. We've made tremendous progress when it comes to learning uh, how to teach students and how to build better schools and, and expand access to education. Uh, just look at New York City, look at the advancements in our higher education system. CUNY, uh, the City University of New York, I, I think is one of the most important opportunity driving institution in the country because it's doing the work every day and it's always learning about how to do a better job of helping students uh, living in poverty enter the working class. So um, it's very, you know, there's good reasons to be upset and frustrated. And I know we've been having these conversations for years and for decades. Um, but I also think we have to embrace the successes we've had and know, and again, I looking at the child tax credit and what we did as a society in 2020 and 2021, even though we were not able to make those extensions permanent, we now know what happens when you provide people with resources. And so I'm confident um, that we can do better uh, now that we know better. And I think it's important for all of us to maintain that confidence because without, without that hope comes despair. And if you have despair, um, it's hard to get to action. Here's a question from a listener. Listener writes, doesn't Robin Hood mean take from the rich and give it to the poor? 
experiencing poverty as one of the first movements seeking to fix inequality in a lobbyistic plutocracy, which this writer calls our society? Yeah, um, uh, it does. I'm not sure what, what the writer means by lobbyist plutocracy, but you know what part of what Robin Hood does, to be honest, that name comes from the fact that we are a public charity that every year raises money um, from generous New Yorkers uh, over $140 million in a typical year. And we invest that money in organizations that are on the front lines of helping New Yorkers in need. Food kitchens, schools, uh, affordable housing providers, homeless services providers, community centers. Um, so we're investing in highly effective organizations, organizations that have evidence that the work they're doing is truly impacting opportunity by helping families escape poverty not only today, but permanently. Uh, and we also invest in advocacy. Based on what we learn from that, from the work of our community partners, we work with government to advocate for policies that we actually know will help New Yorkers do better in life. Uh, and we invest in research that helps us understand the nature of poverty. And so that's what this poverty tracker is all about. It's to help us understand the nature of poverty, but then to use it information as an advocacy tool um, to encourage and push our government partners to do what we know works, to actually make the promise of economic opportunity real for every New Yorker. So it's absolutely what we do. We, we raise money from New Yorkers uh, with means who can afford it, and we re reinvest that money in programs that are helping those of us in need. Do you think, um, well, let me ask you a question from, from a listener uh, via text message on another aspect of this says, wouldn't less red tape slash forms to fill out for government assistance benefit these families? Many people don't have access to computers, the internet, or grasp on legal language. The forms are confusing, and it almost feels like a deterrent, writes this listener. And I think um, a, uh, a, a constant struggle in the city, and I wonder what your view on this is from over time as a former deputy mayor that some administrations are more aggressive than others uh, in doing outreach to New York City residents and letting them know what benefits they're eligible for and how to apply for them. Uh, and some administrations, I think, you know, certainly Giuliani, I think it's fair to say, maybe even Bloomberg, um, worked to limit outreach because they thought that would lead fewer New Yorkers to sign up for any kind of benefits in the first place. Yeah, well, you, you know, your listener is fundamentally right, a thousand percent right, um, is that we make it so hard for families to access the benefits to which they're entitled, the resources to which their children need, that itself becomes a barrier and a boundary uh, to allowing people to access benefits. And a lot of our work at Robin Hood has been really focused on making it easier for the public to access and to get public benefits. Um, and you're also right that a, a, a government can decide um, to go out and make it easier to connect people to services or to make it harder. Uh, you, you talked about my time in the Blavio administration. One of the things that I'm most proud of is that when we were building the pre-K system, we spent as much time thinking about how do we get up these classrooms and hire teachers. We spent just as much time thinking about how do we help parents understand what this program is. How do we make it easier for them to find the program that worked for them? How do we make it as easy as possible for them to enroll? 
And these are the decisions that we make um, when we're trying to figure out how to support people. Some of the work that we're doing at Robinhood right now um, is investing in organizations and tools, including technology-based tools, um, apps and other resources that are designed to, they're trying to use technology and artificial intelligence, again, to reduce these access barriers to everything from how do we use uh, SNAP benefits or WIC benefits to how do you apply, apply for housing or how do you get services if you're recently returning home from incarceration? Um, really trying to reduce these barriers that stand in the way of people getting what they need to thrive. Um, and, and so your your caller is absolutely correct. Another listener writes, I teach at CUNY City Tech. So many of my students have dropped out this year alone, in large part due to mounting responsibility to support their families in economic crisis or on the poverty line. All of these systems are connected and youth need resources, right? That listener who teaches, writes that listener who teaches at CUNY City Tech. Here's yeah. Janine, a former New Yorker, now living in Virginia, calling in. Janine, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hey, Brian, I miss I miss living in New York so much, but it was so hard. I, I was an art. I'm an artist. Uh, I work in the entertainment industry and I've known I, I I've been able to get I knew my life was not going to be easy in New York, but it seems as if the system is is really built to keep people in poverty. I paid like 70 percent of my my income to rent. I worked jobs when I wasn't working in entertainment of waiting tables and being a, a chef and being a personal chef. And I worked for wealthy people who never wanted to pay. And in, with, even with my peers, I was up to see friends shows last week and I had a friend who used to be a nanny and her, the woman didn't want to pay her a living wage to watch her kids. So she found someone who would take less. So, it's it's so hard in New York because the wealthy people who are taking over, honestly, I mean, they'll pay, I guess, to the Robin Hood Foundation, but then they, they'll use an undocumented worker to be the person who cleans their house, and they don't pay people living wages. And a lot of people, I was too proud. I was not raised to, to look for public assistance. So I just would work three and four jobs, and I didn't have kids because I knew I couldn't afford them. So beyond all of that, it, it's figuring out ways to, to, I don't know, encourage people who are wealthy to actually pay their staff. And I'm talking personal assistance. I'm talking, this is what the strike was about. Uh, but poverty actually works for this system. They always want to have people who don't make money. They don't have to pay. And in the pandemic, we call them essential workers. Yeah. Such an important message. Sorry, what was your name again? I apologize. I missed your... Oh, my name is Janine. <laughs> Janine. Thank you, Janine. Thank you, thank you, Janine, for sharing your story. And I, I really hope that people listen to and internalize what you're saying, because our city can't thrive if people like Janine can't make a way here. You know, we need a city with artists and artisans and um, uh, and teachers and firefighters. And we, we need all of these uh, people to make our city go. But the problem is that too many people can't afford to live here, truly can't afford to live here, can't see themselves building a future here. 
And I think ultimately that is the biggest threat to our entire city. Whether you make $10 million a year or $10 a year, you should view that as an existential threat to the well-being of our city. Um, and you also talked about the stigma of getting help. I mean, I think it goes to the other caller, the text about the difficulty of applying for benefits. We also have to remove the stigma of getting help um, because there's no one, again, the person who makes $10 million a year, the person who makes $10 a year, everybody gets help. Everybody needs support. And we have to make sure that um, people who want to be here and who want to make a life here have access to those support. And it's also the last thing I'll say, that it's also so important that we protect the rights of the most vulnerable. One of the campaigns that we've been supporting is the campaign to end, end the tipped wage. There's no reason why people who work as waiters should be dependent on tips to earn a living. Um, and it makes people so valuable, uh, vulnerable, you know, we know, including women especially, who become particularly vulnerable when they're relying on um, tips to just get to a minimum standard of living. Uh, and then the last thing I will say is, is I think what you're what you're saying, Janine, gets at the heart of the story of that, even looking at the 2 million people living in poverty, uh, widely understates the scope of the problem. Um, because the vast majority of New Yorkers are struggling with the thing that you were struggling with. Um, and I think the city is a less vibrant place uh, because you weren't able to stay here. Janine, thanks for your call. Uh, I'll give a listener the last question to you as we run out of time. Listener writes, what does Robin Hood think of or is doing to help achieve a minimum basic income? This could greatly address some of the inequality they are fighting to fix. Do you support that as a solution? Yeah, we we have not formally adopted uh, a position on the minimum basic income, although it's something that we uh, have explored and are trying to understand the research about. One thing that we have advanced is uh, a min uh, rising the increasing the minimum wage, um, so that at least earned wages should actually be. If you were if you work a full time job, you shouldn't be living in poverty in New York. You should be able to pay your rent and buy food and have a standard of living. But uh, I think fundamentally, it's a it's a worthy idea to explore because fundamentally, we know that families need stability in order to thrive. They need stability for their children to grow and develop, but they need stability um, to be able to think about their future, to focus on their education, to improve their skills. Uh, so it's something that we're, we're definitely learning and exploring. I, I will certainly commit to getting smarter about it so that we can uh, we can be a more effective, uh, have a more effective answer to that question. Richard Bury, CEO of Robin Hood. We always appreciate when you come on with us. Thank you very much. Brian, thank you so much for having me. Have a blessed day.